In our current series on the gospel of God, we've been looking at the results of the gospel for the past several weeks. And in shorthand, the primary result of the gospel of God is transformed lives. Human beings that have been made new by the power of God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus by the indwelling spirit, we are exhibit A in the results of the power that is unleashed in God's gospel. And uh, the stories of our lives are, are incredibly wonderful to hear. In our new members class, we're meeting on Tuesday nights. Uh, we have the privilege of hearing from class participants week after week the story of God's transformation in their life and how through their life God continues to work in and through them as well. And it's really a wonderful thing to hear the testimony of another follower of Jesus and how God has changed them. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the transformed lives of the gospel are marked by the obedience of faith in verse 5. That is, those who give complete allegiance to Jesus in all areas of our lives. And they are marked by a secure identity in verses 6 and 7. The gift of God to us, of belonging to Christ Jesus, of being loved by God and of being called holy and to be holy. And as we turn to verses 8 through 15 last week, we began three weeks of unpacking the reality that the mark of transformation is that we become servants. That it is to be a servant of God, as we saw last week, rooted in verse 9. And today, as we focus in on verse 14, we'll see that reality that we are called to be servants of all. And by all, in this case, we mean in particular those outside of the body of Christ, outside of the church. And next week, we'll come back to this text in verses 8 through 15 and look at it more broadly. And we'll see that we're called to be servants of one another. That is, of the people who share with us in the gospel power of God as brothers and sisters in his family. So whereas the world is preoccupied with leaders, God, through the gospel, is creating and developing servants. Servants of God, servants of all, and servants of one another. Look with me at the text in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul says, look, I've tried to come to you often, but I've been prevented. But then he says, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles or the nations, it could be translated faithfully. In other words, Paul is saying that his mission has an expansive horizon to the nations and that he longs to bear fruit in that way. And then he writes in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is, Paul has a responsibility, a duty, a trust that puts him under obligation to everyone without distinction. And we too have that duty and responsibility and obligation if we also are followers of Jesus. So in our time this morning, I want us to think about the origin of this service, the scope of this service, and the nature of this service. We are servants of all. So first, the origin, the obligation, or this debt of service is placed upon Paul's life and your life and my life if we are followers of Jesus not by the Greeks and barbarians, not by the wise and the foolish. Rather, the call to serve derives from God himself, the one whom we are chiefly a servant of. 
It is as a result of the gospel that Paul has become a servant of God. And then God has willed that Paul be under obligation to Greek and barbarian. That just means non-Greeks, non-Greek speaking foreigners. To the wise and to the foolish. God, the God who serves us and gave, us, gave his life for us. He is the one who makes us servants of all. And the logic of this is rooted in his mission to the world. A mission that he declared, first of all, long ago to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. That's when God made it clear that his response to the degradation and decreation of the work of sin in the world that we read about from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the world turning back into chaos instead of the order and beauty that he had created it for. God's response to that was to call this man Abram and to say, Abram, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth. God declares his intention for worldwide blessing through Abram and his descendants. And it is through Jesus, the great son of Abraham, that God is fulfilling this promise and fulfilling his mission to the world, of blessing to the world. He is creating a worldwide family that we read about in Revelation 9 comprises people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And it's the fulfillment of God's mission stated to Abram, Abram long ago in Jesus that Paul celebrates at the end when he arrives at the end of his argument in this letter to the Romans. He says, as Jesus became a servant, God's purposes were achieved for worldwide blessings. So we read in chapter 15, verses eight and nine, for I tell you, Paul says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the nations or the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he says, as it is written, and he quotes four passages from the Old Testament about the Gentiles or the nations being brought into the praise and joy of God. So that is to say, because of the work of God in Christ, the Gentiles or the nations have entered into God's family and partake now in his praise. And that is what Paul celebrates as the outworking of the gospel. And here's the point for us as servants of all. It's this mission of God for worldwide blessing that he now advances through you and through me. Through our humble Christ-like service of all people, God's blessing is expanded to more and more. In other words, by God's design, we are the agents through whom God's mission of worldwide blessing is expanding and taking place. And this makes sense of a number of places, many of which you're familiar with in the New Testament. That's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, he says, go into all the nations and make disciples. Or why he says to his disciples in Acts chapter one, that you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Or why he says to Saul, who became Paul in Acts chapter nine, he, he speaks of, of Saul in this way to Ananias. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What it means to become a servant of God is to be employed by God in his worldwide mission of blessing as a servant of all. So the origin of our mission as servants of all comes from the God that we serve. That is to say that God's work, the family business, so to speak, is to bring blessing to the world. And when you become a part of his family, when you're adopted as a son or daughter of this God by grace through faith, you enter into that very family business. You become an agent of the blessing of God expanding into the world. 
So the origin of our service of all is God and his mission. Let's think secondly then about its scope. All means all. It's that simple. When Paul says in verse 14 that he is under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, he is clarifying for us that there are no ethnic boundaries for the blessing of God. No people group, no nation is out of God's uh, reach. In fact, they're all targets of God's worldwide blessing as he always intended it to be. That was his declared mission in Genesis 12. All the families of the earth would be blessed. So we are, Paul says, he is to serve all nations when he says that he's under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. And then he says, if you look back with me at verse 14, both to the wise and to the foolish. When Paul says this, he's clarifying that his service to others is not bound by any human estimations of value or honor. The wise would have received much value and honor in the culture of their day. The foolish would not have received those things. They would have been seen as outcasts and not receive any honor. But Paul says, look, I'm under obligation to both without regard to where they stand up in relation to any human system of worth or value, I am called to serve them. So to the wise and to the foolish, we could add to the rich and to the poor, to the beautiful and the homely, to the educated and uneducated, to the pleasant and rude, to the interesting and boring, to the young and to the old, and so on. Because God's mission appeals to all or applies to all without regard to any distinctions of prior worth, all quite literally means all. Everyone is included. Friends, enemies, foreigners, family members, bosses, co-workers, refugees, the poor, the rich, those of different ethnicity, those in a different social class, and on. There is no distinction in the scope of our service. Now, one effect of sin at work in the world and at work in our own hearts is to reduce this scope. This was, in fact, a discussion among the experts of the law in Jesus's day. They knew that Leviticus 19 called them to love their neighbors as themselves. But they deba debated who precisely was their neighbor. And this led, of course, to one of the most powerful stories that Jesus told in his earthly ministry. You'll remember in Luke chapter 10 when he was confronted by a lawyer. And the lawyer asked him this question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And that question invited Jesus to tell this powerful story about a man who was preyed upon by robbers, fell among robbers, was left on the side of the road for dead. And the priest goes by and on the other side. And the Levite sees the man and walks by on the other side. And Jesus continues, but a Samaritan. And he says it was the Samaritan who stopped and went over to the man and bound up his wounds and put the man on his beast and carried him to the, the nearest inn and gave the innkeeper money and said, look, I want you to take care of this man, whatever his needs may be, and the debt will be mine. This is so significant because the Samaritans were despised by the Jews, looked down upon, seen as impure and compromised and certainly not objects of their concern or love or mercy in any way. The Samaritans for sure were not neighbors to the Jews, though they physically were. They were not neighbors in the way that Leviticus 19 meant it. So when Jesus gets to the end of the parable, he asks the lawyer a question. 
he lets the lawyer answer his own question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan, could he? He just answers, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. The point of this story is not simply, though of course it is, that we are to be kind and merciful like the Samaritan was that day on that road to that stranger he didn't know. But it is also, and perhaps more deeply, the fact that the, that the Samaritan is in fact the lawyer's neighbor. And that the Samaritan is one to whom the lawyer, as a member of the people of God, owes his service, his love, his mercy. This man who was the very last person that the lawyer would have wanted to include in the term neighbor was in fact the man that Jesus makes it impossible not to include. No one is excluded. All means all. And just to ratchet this up a notch, if that doesn't ratchet it enough, up enough already, this includes our enemies. Jesus commands us to love our enemies in Matthew chapter 5. And right before he gives us that command, he talks about this costly way of interacting with people. He says, don't resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek. Give your cloak as well as your tunic. If somebody forces you to walk one mile with him, walk two. Go the extra mile. And these are costly acts of service offered even to those who are hurting us. And later in the book of Romans, Paul actually invites us to imitate Jesus in this way in chapter 12 when he's applying the gospel of God to our lives in very practical ways. He says to them in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. That should, of course, make us think of Jesus because Jesus taught that. And then he goes on and quotes Proverbs 25 and says, don't, take, don't, take, don't avenge yourselves. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he clarifies, to walk in the way of Jesus means to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. To continue to serve those who are wronging us, even as they are wronging us. Now, let me make a quick disclaimer. This doesn't mean if you're in a situation where you're being exploited and you're vulnerable and you're being taken advantage of that we're calling you as the church to stay there. In fact, we would want to help you get out of those situations. But this kind of call, this radical ethic of loving our enemies is actually coming out of a place of strength in the people of God. Because we've been won over by his love, because we've been rescued by his grace, we now have the ability in strength to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to love those who are trying to undermine our lives. And of course, Jesus doesn't just teach this, does he? We're all here today if we follow Jesus because Jesus lived this. Jesus embodied this in his own life as he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross on behalf of his enemies. God says, well, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We rejected him. We mocked him. We insulted him. We spit on him. We betrayed him. We walked away from him. And even in that process, Jesus silently like a lamb before his shears goes to the cross to make his enemies friends, to win them over. And as he does so, isn't it amazing? The blessing of God expands. It breaks all boundaries. It, it extends to the ends of the earth because of his deep and radical love. We thank God for his love for his enemies. And the God that we thank calls us as his sons and daughters to carry on his mission in this exact same way. 
But the reality is, if, if we're honest, I think for most of us, there are people that we don't want to serve. People that we don't want to see God bless. We read from the prophet Jonah. Jonah did not want the Ninevites to receive the blessing of God, did he? That's why he ran off to Tarshish when God called him to Nineveh. After a little bit of remedial training, which involved being swallowed by a fish and spit up on a beach, Jonah finally gets it in his mind that he needs to go to Nineveh. And he goes and he proclaims the message of God, the word of God to the people there. And they relent, they repent, they turn away. And God says, look, I won't bring the judgment upon them that I was going to bring. Even after all of the training that Jonah received in the belly of the whale, the fish, he's still angry at God for bringing blessing on the Ninevites. And God teaches him a lesson through a plant in Jonah chapter four. I wonder for you and for me, who are the Ninevites in our lives? Who are the people that we think, God, there's no way you could bless them? Perhaps it's people on the other side of the political aisle from us. Or maybe it's those who you feel are threatening religious freedom by a progressive approach to sexuality and gender in our culture. Or possibly it's those that you think are too rigid in their approach to the Christian life who galvanize around certain cultural issues and you think may miss the big picture. Or maybe it's those who have departed from the orthodox apostolic faith but continue to claim the name Christian. I have to confess that one is hard for me. Or maybe it's those who have hurt us deeply in a personal way. And we could go on. In an article published on Huffington Post, January 28th, 2013, uh, written by Shane Windmeyer, it's entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Now, this article raises the issue of sexuality, and I wanna be clear and say that we at Park Street Church uphold the orthodox position on sexuality that we believe is taught very clearly in the Bible, that sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. But at the same time, I want you to know that I hope that we hold this position in a winsome, humble, respectful, and gracious manner. We believe that God's vision for sex is beautiful and good and that it leads to genuine flourishing and that our culture's vision of sex, at least the dominant vision today, is heartbreaking and damaging. At the same time, having said that, we know that the world is broken and that we are broken and we don't hold this position from any place that where we stand above the fray. We also know that this topic is deeply personal. And by bringing it up now, I'm sure that I've elevated the temperature in the room. It's personal and real because we're talking about people that we love, our sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. And we always need to remember that whenever we talk about this as the church. I want you to know that if you're in a different place than this, that you are welcome here. And we want to invite you into a conversation in which, and into a community in which we can wrestle with you together in these matters and that you can grow with us. So with that said, I wanna say that Shane Windmeyer was the director of an organization that he founded called Campus Pride. It's the leading organization for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender students and he was writing in 2013 as a 40-year-old gay man who had been married to his husband for 18 years. And he was writing to come out, as he said, as a friend of the COO of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy. 
In the seven months preceding this article, Dan Cathy had initiated a conversation with Shane. Shane's organization was boycotting Chick-fil-A and trying to raise a national stink uh, about the organization, about Chick-fil-A, for the way in which they had funded organizations that they saw as anti-LGBTQ. Dan got Shane's number and called him. Shane said he didn't want to pick up the phone. He thought he'd just get berated by this man that he didn't know. Instead, he was surprised by a one-hour-long conversation in which Dan asked him questions, listened to his perspective, and sought to build a genuine relationship with Shane. That conversation that day led to many text messages back and forth, to additional phone calls, and eventually to a few in-person meetings in which Dan sought to listen well to his new friend, Shane. And then Dan invited Shane to be his guest at the New Year's Eve Chick-fil-A Bowl, and Shane was writing this article a few weeks later. They had been, they had been photographed together in national publications and Shane wanted to make a statement. And this is what he says. All of this was initiated by Dan, a follower of Jesus. And this is how Shane describes him. Throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And then Shane continues and says, Dan in his heart is driven by his desire to minister to others and had to choose to continue our relationship throughout this controversy. He had to both hold to his beliefs and welcome me into them he had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints in life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it. I did as well. Dan Cathy, and to be clear, I do not know him, but I do love his chicken sandwich. <laughs> he gives us a tremendous example of being a servant of all. Even of those with whom we would disagree, even perhaps of those in this case who would be defined as his enemy because of the controversy that they were caught up in. This is what it means to be part of the family of God. This is what it means to be a servant of all. All means all. Third and finally, the nature of our service. What does it mean to be a servant of all in the mission of God? How could we drill this down? And let me say this, it means that we pursue the interests of God in the life of all our neighbors. It means that we pursue the interests of God. That is, we serve all as first servants of God. So it's what God desires in the lives of others that matters most. And so we serve God's interests in the lives of others. That, of course, includes acts of service in terms of kindness and direct care and compassion and meeting needs, which is probably what we all think of when we think of that phrase, servants of all. But I want to say to you that it involves more than this. Because we are servants as witnesses to the gospel. Remember last week, Paul said he was a servant of God in the gospel of his son. The sphere of our service is in the gospel work. And what our neighbors need most, and this is just fundamentally true, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you and I both believe that what our neighbors need most is to be connected to the living God by whom, for, for whom they were made. That's what our neighbors need. 
They need to know God. And they need to know that the, the idols that demand their allegiance and service are idols that simply bring about pain and heartache and diminishment. And so we are on a mission employed by God to expand his worldwide blessing by exposing the idols of our day and bearing witness to the one true and living God. Now, some of you may maybe think I just said, now what we're supposed to do is just broadcast a message. And that's not it at all. I want to say something a little bit more nuanced than that about what it means, the nature of our service. I want to say that it includes three dimensions. That we are to be attentive to the ways in which our being, that is who we are, our doing, that is what we do, and our speaking, that is what we say, reflect the character, truth, and intentions of the God who loves us and loves his world. Our witness to the gospel of Jesus is fully embodied. It entails being, doing, and saying, and communicates then to the world that God is about blessing our neighbors, even the neighbors that we find repugnant to ourselves. God wants to bless them and bring them into his life. And therefore, our witness embodying these three ways is not to be coercive or belligerent or triumphalistic. It is rather to be exemplary and invitational. It is to live a compelling life, not marked by the cultural values of the day, but marked so deeply by the values of God and his kingdom that we would have the aroma of Christ as we speak and do and are in the way of his kingdom. Let's take those three in order for a moment. On being, we are to be a community of love that is marked by repentance and forgiveness, kindness and humility, meekness and gentleness, and service, of course. I wonder, are we playing our part in the community of God's people to be this kind of people, not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ. There's perhaps no better contemporary example of this kind of being than the radical forgiveness that was shown by the Amish community in 2006 to the widow of Charles Roberts. Roberts was the 32-year-old who entered into a one-room schoolhouse and shot 10 girls, killing five of them, and then shot himself. And within days, the Amish community was declaring their forgiveness of this man to his widow. In fact, they attended Robert's funeral and they set up a support fund for his family. This was the, the kind of ruthless forgiveness that we are called to as a different kind of being in the world. And the world took notice, of course. Within two weeks, Marie Roberts wrote, she was the widow of the, the gunman, wrote an open letter to the Amish community in which she said, quote, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you." Unquote. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our doing, we are to be a community that is committed to walking in the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And that's an allusion to Genesis 18, verse 19. This is why God chose Abraham and his descendants, that they might walk in the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice 
so that he might accomplish his purposes of worldwide blessing through them. Do we love and care for the widow, the orphan, the alien, the refugee, the poor, and the vulnerable of this world? Kevin Palau is uh, involved in leading the organization named after his father, Luis Palau, the Luis Palau Association. And I got to meet Kevin about six weeks ago here and spend some time together with him. And he tells the story, he actually wrote a book about it in 2015 called Unlikely. But he tells the story of gathering evangelical churches in Portland, Oregon, where their organization is based, and going to the mayor, who was an openly gay man, and mayor in, the mayor of Portland. Portland, we all know, is known for its very progressive, you know, it's a very progressive place, much like Boston. And they went to the mayor and they said, Mayor, we want to know how we can serve you. How can we serve this city? And the mayor actually gave them some ideas of working in, in healthcare and with the homeless and with education and with housing. And they, they, they rallied thousands of believers to come alongside the city of Portland and to serve, just to serve, to do works of righteousness and justice in their community. And they did. And at a, a year later, after they had begun this initiative, they had a carnival to celebrate the work that God had done through them. And none other than the mayor himself shows up and stands up on the platform and says, you know, you people are people I thought I was going to dismiss, that I would never have a relationship with. But through your service, I want you to know that Portland is a better place today than it was before. Our doing matters in our witness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And he says, let them see your good works, that they may glorify God, your Father who is in heaven. This matters. Jeremiah says to the, to the uh, people of God as they're on ex in exile, to seek the welfare of the city, seek the shalom, seek the, the flourishing, the prospering of the city where I've sent you in exile. And that, that command to them applies to us. And it was lived out by people like Daniel and his companions as they served in Babylon and people like Joseph long before them as he served in Egypt. And it's, it's lived out as we, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, continue to do righteousness and justice in our world. And then finally, our speaking. Remember when Jesus in John 6 tells his disciples about they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood and people are like, this is hard stuff. And they walk away and he looks at his disciples and said, are you guys going to leave me too? And what does Peter see? He says, Lord, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. When we declare our witness, when we serve all, it includes not only who we are, not only what we do, but it also, of course, includes what we say, how we speak. We speak of Jesus. We bear witness to Jesus. We tell the world that there is a king who was crucified on a cross for their sakes and for ours, and that he is now living and reigning and ruling over all things, and he's restoring all things, and he's making all things new through the power of his spirit, and he wants them to come into his kingdom and to know genuine and true life. And we speak that without shame. And it, it lines up because of who we are and because of what we do in the world. It lines, it matches, and people want to listen and they want to hear what we have to say in the world. That's not always. Some people won't. But that's the idea that we learn about in the New Testament as we speak. This last week, I got to go to see Dude Perfect in their live show. I mentioned them from the pulpit a few, weeks, a few months ago, but they're a group of five men from Texas who basically made videos of trick shots and became YouTube celebrities. And they have 51 million followers, my son tells me now on YouTube. And they were at the TD Garden. And there weren't a lot of trick shots because it's hard to pull off a trick shot in a live show. Uh, but they did do an, an entertaining show for two hours. But what grabbed my son and his friend most was at the end, the leader, Ty, got up and said, hey, our show's over. Thanks so much for coming. Most of you might, might know that we're Christians. And I'd like to share a story with you if you're willing to stick around. 
but you can leave if you want to. We'll be back in two or three minutes. And so a bunch of people got up and left, but probably half the people at TD Garden stayed. And Ty came back out on the stage and the four guys were behind him. And he said, you know, we're called Dude Perfect. He's like, we're not dudes and we're definitely not perfect. And we just want you to know the only thing perfect in our lives is the perfect sacrifice that God made through his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And that our lives are what they are because of his love for us. And he wants to love you in the same way too. And at least for my teenage son, this was a powerful moment. And I'm sure it was for countless others. I saw some of you there too. I'm knowing I wasn't alone there. But of speaking of the gospel, speaking of Jesus as king, being unashamed. When Ty closed that little testimony time in prayer, he, he prayed, God, we pray that you would help us to use this platform for your glory. They have a ridiculous platform. They're just five guys. But they love the Lord and they want to use it for his glory. Isn't that great? You know, you and I are called to be servants of all. There is no one that you will see today or tomorrow, whether that's on the internet, on TV, in the Boston Common, at your workplace, when you go home tonight in your, your house, or on the streets, there's no one that you'll see that you are not called by the God who loves you to be a servant of, to bear witness to Jesus by who you are, by what you do, and by what you say. It's an amazing calling God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love expressed to us in Jesus at the cross. Lord, we are, ah, we are woefully short of this calling. And we confess our shortcomings to you. We confess our pettiness. We confess there are many Ninevites in our lives, like Jonah, that we don't want to see you blessed. Lord, forgive us for our hard hearts. Lead us into green pastures. Lead us beside still waters. Lord, lead us to become a servant of all that we see, everyone around us, and to bring glory and honor and praise to your name, that your blessing might expand greater and greater in this world. We long for it, oh God. We long to participate with you in it. For your glory, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.